0: It's very nice to reflect, and we're going to do a lot of reflecting today in Scripture and in a very special journey through Scripture. And actually, this journey started for me last week uh, when I was preparing to share a little bit in the midst of our beautiful, wonderful music last week, and I got to stand up for a few minutes and talk about Psalms 8 where it just magnifies the Lord and talks about mankind, human beings, you and me, as men and women, and all that God wants for us, and as I thought about that and walked through some of that last week, I was drawn, and I want to say that genuinely, I was drawn to consider the journey that this has been through the scriptures, through mankind, through creation, sin, destruction, and all that is coming through restoration and the redemption that Almighty God plans for us. So today, if you would, please get a Bible, and I'm going to go through several scripture passages, and I'm going to... discuss them with you and help you on this journey. Now, as we begin this journey, I want to indicate to you that there's a very important question that we must answer. And the question is not related to, is Jesus coming again? That's already answered, that's a fact. He is coming again, but the question is at the end of the age, as we say, or at the end of history as we know it here as as human beings, when Jesus comes again, the question is, is he going to erase the damage that has been done by sin in humanity and also in nature? Two very important erasures. Is he going to take care of that? Now, there is a Definite pattern that comes through scripture related to that. But the fact is, is that sometimes we do believe, as Christians, we do believe that he is going to erase the damage that sin has done in my life and in your life. But do we consider that he's going to erase the damage that's done in the nature, in the creation that he has established in the very dawn of creation? in what we see in the beauty outside, is he going to get that corrected? Well, there is an answer to that. And in order to find the answer in the truth of Scripture, we've got to go all the way back to the dawn of creation. And I want you to think with me, and surely you know, and we're going back to the very first chapter of Genesis, but you know that he has created this world. He has created the world, he's created light, he's created water, he's created land, he's created creatures, he's created, created, created. And we celebrate that, and even in him saying over and over and over, it was good, it was good, his creation was good. And that's very important to you and me. But then in verse 27 of Genesis, the first chapter, he comes to the point where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground now that phrase right there when God said be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and do what subdue it and rule over it now we're talking about at the very dawn of creation God is saying that to mankind to men and women that he is creating right here in his image and he is saying that it is your responsibility now we know that in the creation he created adam and eve as partners as man and woman and he's saying to them that you're to rule over that everything that i created is to be subjected to your rulership you have royalty over my creation is what god has said to them and again he's saying and that is all good And so what did he do then? He's got this amazing creation of men and women, his image, and now he's going to create a place in which for them to live. And so we have this passage of scripture in the second chapter of Genesis, and if you're following along, it's verses 8 through 14, and it's a beautiful statement of God's creation of what we call The Garden of Eden, because that's what Scripture calls it. Verse 8, chapter 2 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to thine, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river watering the garden, flowed from Eden, from there it was separated into four rivers, four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, there's also aromatic resin and ox, and the name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush, the name of the third river is Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And this is the Garden of Eden, and it was obviously beautiful. There were trees and plants and food, and there was water, and there were four rivers. And in God's creation, this was home. This was designed for Adam and Eve, and for men and women, for mankind created by God. This beautiful place, this peaceful place, this together place, this place of order was created by Almighty God for his creation. But what happened? You know what happened. And surely we know what happens in the third chapter. Of Genesis. The third chapter of Genesis starts off with a very interesting statement. It says that the serpent was the craftiest of the creation of the, the lowly creed, creed, creatures. And I want to put a, some more words in there. The serpent was crafty? No, we got to say more. And I do believe that this is what God's saying, because the serpent is Satan, Satan himself in serpent form, and Satan is more than crafty, he is destructive, he is distracting, he is a liar, he is a schemer, and he is an expert at what he does. He was then, and we're going to see this having its effect on Eve in just a moment, and yet even to this day, he is still a liar, a destroyer, a schemer, a trickster in your life and in mine. And that's part of Satan. And now in the third chapter of Genesis, he comes into this beautiful setting that we call the Garden of Eden. And we can hardly even picture it because it was perfect in God's creation. And now the serpent comes in and he says to Eve, he said, did God really tell you that you would die if you touched that tree or ate of the fruit? Do you understand? Do you feel the implications here? Even in the wording of what scripture tells us, Satan is saying, did he really? Surely, surely not. Surely not. You got to be kidding me. God wouldn't say that to you. There's manipulation in the very attitude of what the serpent is saying to Eve there. And then she defends. She says, Well, yes, he said that we couldn't eat of that or we couldn't touch it or we would die. And then Satan returns and says, Do you think he would really die? Placing doubt, placing temptation placing the opportunity of sin into Eve's life. And she she succumbed to that. She looked at the tree, she looked at the garden, she said, the fruit of this tree is beautiful and I'm sure it tastes wonderful and I even have a sense that if I eat that, that there will be wisdom that would come into my being. And so we know that she reached and took what we would call the forbidden fruit, and she ate of it. And not only did she eat of it, but she, to this man that was with her, this man by the name of Adam, she offered it to him, and please understand, he took it. She didn't force it on him. And so this whole element of sin that entered into this beautiful setting that God has created, I don't blame that on Eve, I don't blame that on Adam. I look at both of them in their relationship as partners, as man and woman together, and they both succumb to the temptation of the serpent of Satan. And you know what happened. They suddenly realized that they were naked, they were ashamed, they were tentative, they were fearful. And what did they do? I want you to get this. I want you to remember because they heard God in the garden, their Heavenly Father, the one that had created all of this beauty, and they hid from Him. They ran away. Now, guess what, folks? We've been hiding and running from God ever since. You, me, it's part of our human condition. Because God is perfect and we're not. And we run and hide from our Heavenly Father. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Because now in the beauty of this this place and in the beauty of all of his creation, they are not peaceful. They are frightened. They are fearful. And they're getting away from God. They think he's going to get after them. Well, (coughs) Excuse me. And he did discipline them. He did say, what are you guys doing? Where are you? And then he looks at the serpent, and he issues a curse to the serpent. And then he looks at Eve, and he issues a curse to her that she will suffer in childbearing. The beauty of bringing human life into this world is going to be a suffering experience for her. And then he looked at Adam, and he not only cursed Adam, but at the same time, he cursed the ground, the creation, the nature. Now, I want to read here from the third chapter, because this curse to Adam is very, very vital to what we're saying here this morning. In third chapter, verse 17 through 19, God is saying, cursed is the ground because of you. He's speaking to Adam. Adam is responsible for this. Why is Adam responsible for this curse? Because Adam was given the primary leadership and rulership of all of nature, of all of the creatures in the world, of everything. Remember in the plan, everything was subject to, to God's amazing creature, creation being man and woman. So he's saying here to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken from... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So now at this point, just three chapters into the book of Genesis, in the early days of this beautiful creation that God has given, then there is curse, there is damage, there is brokenness, there is sin, there is fear, there is fretting, there is worry. This is what happens when the world is broken. And we've been broken, living we, mankind, men and women, and nature, and creation. We've been living in that brokenness and sinfulness all of these hundreds of years, thousands of years. Now, if you don't agree with that, just think a minute about even nature. What happens in nature right now? Is it in order or is it broken? We have hurricanes, we have earthquakes, we have disasters, We have disease. We have wars. Can you imagine anything more broken than what we have in our world today? How about little babies that starve to death? They die because they don't have water and food to eat. They're in a famine. That's part of the brokenness of this world that has come about because Adam Particularly in Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation of Satan now that is tragedy upon tragedies but it is fact that is part of what we live with however the story is not over and the story moves on and it has moved on through the ages with godly people like you and me with people that kept believing in Almighty God as the creator and the provider of what is beautiful and right. And in that, God continues to work with you and me and with all of his people to create restoration. Now, I want to go to the eighth chapter of Psalms where we meet again David, the psalmist that writes this beautiful chapter, this beautiful statement in Psalm 8, and I will even say I want to remind you that he is actually King David because he was a God-anointed king over his people. Now, did David sin? Was he broken? Yes. We know, even though David was a man after God's own heart, that David was a broken spurt person. He had significant sin in his life, but he also had significant redemption in his life. And so David here in Psalm 8 makes this powerful statement about what? About the wonderful creation of Almighty God and the plan that God had in the original and the plan that God still has. Please understand God's plans have not gone away. God's promises are God's promises. And they have not gone away. And here David is reflecting back on the creation order that God had promised in the early days. When he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? the sons and the daughters of man, that you care for them. You made him and them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them ruler over all the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now that's what God said in the creation order. He said, this world will be ruled by you. Everything, everything will be subject to you as my main creations, you men, you women. And then Adam and Eve come along and it's broken and they have the disasters of brokenness and sin. But now David is calling back to that. And he is reminding that this is God's original plan. Now, that's in Psalms, obviously the Old Testament. But what happens with that same passage in the New Testament? Because we find it again in the second chapter of Hebrews. I read, for this, read this a moment ago for your benefit and for us to begin thinking about it. Because in the book of Hebrews, second chapter, verse 6 and following, it says, but there's a place where someone has testified. Who has testified? David in Psalms 8. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying here. There is a place where someone has testified and has said, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, the son of mankind that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. There it is again. God's plan, David has reflected on it in Psalms 8 and now the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on it here in the New Testament, that everything is supposed to be under the rulership of God's creation, the men and women, his masterpiece, if you would, of creation. But the the passage goes on in Hebrew. It says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing, nothing that is not subject to them. So everything is subject to them. It says in God's original plan. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying here. Yet, at present, obviously, and even right now, things are not subject to mankind. We're broken as is nature broken. We're in need of God's redemption and restoration. Human beings, creation, nature. And so, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. It's, a, it's apart from God's plan. But verse 9, but we see Jesus. Jesus just entered the picture right here. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus Christ came into this world and suffered death, and in so being, Almighty God has crowned him with glory and honor, and he suffered death so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, what does that mean? He might taste death for everyone. The fact is, is that Jesus came into this world, lived as a human being, as mankind, as you and I are, and suffered a natural death. He was dead. Yes, he was dead. And he said, it is finished. And then three days later, he walked out of the tomb totally alive. And in so doing, I believe this passage is saying he suffered death and went through the death and then the resurrection to say to his creation, you and me, that we don't have to die. Now, I want you to think about that because that's almost beyond imagination. But I've said said that to you before. We don't have to die. Why do I say that? I'm not crazy. I'm reading scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not die, shall not perish, but have life forever. That's what John 3.16 says. Jesus said to Martha, if you believe in me, you will not die. Well, here the reason that Jesus died is so that you and I would not have to die. And so here the Hebrew writer is calling our attention back to the fact that the condition of the world and condition of humanity is broken. And we go back to our original question that I said we've got to to wrestle with Here today, when Jesus comes back, when his second coming and he comes back into this world, is he going to erase the brokenness? Is he going to restore? Is he going to forgive? Is he going to create redemption? And not just you and me as human beings, but in his creation even. Now we're talking about two areas of restoration. We're talking about humanity And we're talking about nature, uh, his creation, the natural world, the natural order of the world. And so is he? Well, now we move to the eighth chapter of Romans. And in this passage, wonderfully, there is a statement that absolutely answers our question. And it's been moving toward that all these hundreds and thousands of years since the dawn of creation. And it moved through David in in Psalms 8. It moved through the Hebrew writer in in Hebrews 2. And now we go to Romans 8 and the Apostle Paul is celebrating what's about to come. Now I'm going to give you a big word. I only know one big word. Okay? Uh, They didn't teach me that when I was getting my PhD. We dealt with simple words and listening to people as a counselor. But... I want to give you actually two words together, and it sounds real impressive. If you want to throw this around at your next dinner party, you can do this. But the uh, the Apostle Paul is looking forward to eschatological transformation. How many people know the term eschatology? I hope you do. It is a basic term related to our Christian faith, eschatology means the study of the order of things that are to come. When Jesus Christ comes back, when the end of time comes. Anytime we're studying eschatology, and this is part of what Paul is saying, and I'm saying that he is looking forward to, he's about to prophesy, he's about to call our attention to an eschatological transformation, meaning change that's going to come in this broken world and this broken humanity that we have in which we live right now. And so in Romans 8, this is what Paul says. Please listen. I'll make a few comments about it. I want you to think about this. Paul says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let that sink in. Because we are suffering now. We are broken now. We are sinful now. But Paul is saying that this present suffering does not compare. It does not get in the way of. We can concentrate on the glory that will be revealed in us. That glory, remember Jesus in his death has been crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the future hope of glory. That's what Paul is talking about here, that we are looking forward to that glory that will be revealed in us, for us. Verse 19 goes on, the creation, that's the natural order, the the nature, God's creation. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God To be revealed. Who are the sons of God? The sons and the daughters of God. That's you and me. The people who believe in God. Who trust Jesus Christ. Who have become a part of his family. He's our father. We are his sons. And daughters. We are part of his family. And so here it's saying. That the creation. Even waits or looks forward to. This business of us having this revelation in us. Now, let me explain something. As sons, of, sons and daughters of God, you are justified if you're sitting here today as a believer in Jesus Christ. Justified. That is the first step in this journey. Secondly, you are in the process of being sanctified. Sanctification is a lifelong journey I call it climbing a mountain and it is a worthy mountain to be climbed it is a difficult mountain to be climbed and yet sanctification, the climbing of this mountain under God's leadership is an amazing mountain a peaceful mountain a joyful mountain to climb so you're justified then you're sanctified through your lifelong process and you and I haven't reached the third place yet but then we're glorified now when are we glorified? that's what this is talking about when Jesus comes back when we have this hope of glory then we're glorified through that process going on with verse 20 there in Romans 8 for the creation was subjected to frustration now that's a difficult term the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who was that? Remember Adam? The curse? What did God say? The ground is cursed because of you. He said that to Adam. His his primary creation. And so now Adam is the one that subjected the nature to this terrible journey that, that we're talking about here. So... It's not subjected to frustration by its own choice, but by the one who subjected it. And the hope is that the creation itself will be liberated. That's a key term. The creation will be freed, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, there is a picture of nature or the creation being liberated or being freed and brought into the freedom of the children of God. We're going to be free. We are free now because of Christ in our life. But our freedom right now does not in any way compare to the freedom that we're going to have when we're glorified when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom here on this earth. There is going to be pure Absolute freedom in our life. And the scripture is saying, by the same token, nature, the creation of God, our natural world is going to be freed, liberated from the destruction that sin has brought into this world. Verse 22, we know, and I love that phrase, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not just creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to all the Christians there in Rome. He's talking to you and I right here today. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Again, I emphasize that this whole passage right here is the answer to our question. Is God going to erase? Is God going to restore? Is Jesus Christ, when he comes back, is he going to make everything back into the order of his original plan? Please get what I'm saying. That is the hope that I have in my life. I look forward to that. Now, I don't know how it's all going to happen. I don't know how all the pieces are going to fall into place. I don't know how the end of the age is going to come. There are all sorts of theories and thoughts about that. I have mine, you have yours. There are a lot of people that have theirs. I don't know. I do know some things about this time of Jesus Christ coming back. Number one... I know that it is true. He is coming back. Number two, I know that God's in charge. However it's going to happen, God is in charge and Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to establish his kingdom here on this earth with all this restoration of humanity and nature and creation. And so, yes, God's in charge. Number three, In this whole process, please do not be afraid because he is your heavenly father and he is going to take care of you. And number four, we win. We win because of God's grace, power, love, and all the freedom that he will give us. And so the answer to our question is absolutely. He is going to restore, he's going to renew He's going to redo humanity and nature. And in fact, and I breathe a real sigh of relief as I about say this. He is going to restore the Garden of Eden. We're going to have, again, I don't know how that will be, but we're going to have the beauty that he intended at the dawn of creation. And I believe that just as surely as I'm sitting here. Why? Because I believe scripture. I believe what I've read to you today. Now, one final reading that I'm going to share with you before I finish. Because this is a powerful statement of this renewed, restored, redone nature and and creation that Jesus Christ is going to bring about when he comes back. And it's in the 35th chapter of Isaiah. And so here we have another Old Testament passage. But it is a statement, a beautiful, powerful statement, a detailed statement. And so if you're looking at it, please read along. But I'm going to read it. Please listen very carefully. It's a little bit long, not terribly long. But it is emphatic in its statement of beauty and restoration. It says in the 35th chapter of Isaiah, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like crocus it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God, There will be strength given to the feeble hands, steady to the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear because your Lord will come. He will come with his vengeance, Without, I mean with divine retribution. He will come to save you. He will take care of of you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go go about on this highway. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. The ransomed of the Lord. Those of us that believe will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will be no more. Amen. Do you understand that God's original plan is coming again? And all of this, you and me, all of God's creation will be restored to the beauty and the order and the peacefulness that He has always wanted and that we, you and I, are definitely to look forward for it. Amen, and let's pray. Father, how deeply we thank you for for this story, how sad we are that mankind, we human beings, men and women, have messed up your original plans. And we confess that, yes, we have. We confess that we need your forgiveness. And we confess that we believe in you and your restorative power, the fact that we will have the new Jerusalem, the new Eden, the new blessing of restoration of humanity and your creation. And, Father... How could we ever say thank you enough for that? We come into your presence with our minds and our hearts and our spirits, our behavior, our relationships, all that we are, all that we do. We come before you with thanksgiving, with a spirit of commitment, a spirit of believing the facts and the truth, of your word, your Bible. And we thank you that in that we have the hope of glory. So, Father, thank you for your blessings. And we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.